This week what we're going to do is we're going to compare two people in the Bible who had decisions to make about how to handle their money. And one made the right decision and one made the wrong decision. Luke chapter 18, we're going to find these two people actually just a chapter apart. In fact, uh, I don't think it's any coincidence. This is something that I just really noticed this week. But Luke uh, is a pretty chronological storyteller, but he also says a lot about money in the Gospel of Luke. And I don't think it's any coincidence that he places these two people so closely together. All right? So starting in chapter 18, verse 18, it says this. A certain ruler. Now, not from this passage, but from one of the uh, other Gospels, we understand that only was this guy a ruler, but he was young. So it was a certain young ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. I can see him puffing out his chest as he says it. And Jesus says in verse 22, you still lack one thing. Sell some of your stuff. Is that what he says? Sell a portion of it. 80%. What does he say? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, I want to contrast this guy. We don't know his decision yet. Well, most of you do because you've read the Bible before. But contrast him with somebody that comes at the beginning of Luke chapter 19, a man named Zacchaeus. Now, what do we know about Zacchaeus? He's short, right? Now, here's the thing. When you ask that question in church, what do you know about Zacchaeus? The first answer almost always is he's short. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. All right. Now, here's the truth. If you ask the people of his day what's the defining characteristic of Zacchaeus, they would not have said he's short. They would have said he's rich and a traitor. Verse, chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed a fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. Verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now what I want to do over the next few minutes is to look at two observations out of these stories. And I left both stories kind of hanging, even though you know the ending if you've been in church. You know the ending of the story, but I want to leave them hanging there with decisions in the balance. And what I want us to see is the main thing that could have held both of these guys back was their money. Now, when I speak on money, there are usually a couple of reactions that I see immediately in the congregation. One is there are those of you out there that think that you got this situation solved, and so you sit up straight and you look around thinking, all right, I'm glad he's talking to some people in this room this morning. A second reaction is suddenly faces go serious. Hands go on wallets. Purses are clutched a little more tightly. 
Like he's not coming after mine. What I want us to understand is that money is probably the thing that most of us in this room struggle with the most, and yet we know that the least. First point today is this, is that none of us have a problem with this, or so we think. A philosopher named Nietzsche, who's famous for not really thinking that God was going to make it in Western culture very well, he thinks that God is dead in our culture, said that the thing that he saw is that people in our culture started replacing God with money several years ago. He said this, and I thought it was interesting, what induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire, have to insure it for more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper class indulge in legalized fraud? What gives rise to all this? It's not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious. They are urged on day and night by terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly and by an equally terrible longing and love for those heaps of gold. I read this week about a pastor who decided to do a series on the seven deadly sins. You remember seven deadly sins? I know that's kind of a Catholic tradition, but uh, many of you remember that. I remember when I was in school, I think studying tales of the Canterbury Tales, we had to learn about the seven deadly sins. And uh, the teacher that I had, Miss Edwards, in high school taught us to learn them by remembering the word gas leak. Anybody, anybody else do gas leak? Good, that's just me. All right. Gas leak stood for, isn't it amazing I still remember this, gluttony, avarice, sloth, lust, envy, anger, and pride. All right? And so you went down through that list. Well, this pastor decided he was going to teach a series on the seven deadly sins once in each week, and he publicized it for everybody to know. Well, this week will be this, and this week will be that. And he said he knew from the beginning which week would be the lowest attended week. He said it would be the one on greed. He said, now here's the thing. I didn't think it would be the lowest attended week because that's not a problem. He said, I thought it would be the lowest attended week because everybody thought they had that already figured out and they were okay. He said the statistics came in, and by a large margin, it was the smallest week. I got to thinking about in my own counseling as a pastor. As a pastor, I hear lots about people's secret things, things that are going on in their lives, difficulties they're having, things that they want prayer about, and I treat all that very sensitively. And I've had a wide range in my close to 10 years of ministry. I've had a wide range of people coming in saying, Pastor, I'm struggling with this. Pastor, I've got a problem with this. Pastor, can you pray for me with this? And I got to thinking, I have never had somebody come in and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with greed. I have a problem with money. And I began to think, well, why is that the case? And I realized that most of us really don't think we have a problem with it. We really don't think there's a problem with greed in our lives. And the reason we don't think that is because we compare ourselves to everybody else. And in the neighborhoods we live in, all of our houses look the same, so nobody's greedy on our block. And our kids all have the same clothes, and they all have the same toys, and we do the same things, and we go to the same events. And there's no real reason to think that we have a problem with greed. Now, for some of us, there are moments when we wonder about it. We see pictures from Haiti, and we worry that maybe we've got a little too much. We take a trip down to Brazil, and we walk the streets, and we see people have nothing, and we think about, wow, we might have a little too much. But we get back into our own places, and we sit in our own houses with our own friends, and we think about what we don't have, and we forget 
how much we do. I was driving down the street uh, the other day, and there was a sign up, something about the economy, and I, the Lord just kind of put this thought in my head. You see, because when you ask Americans, whether they're upper class, middle class, or lower class, all of them say something other than upper class almost. Two percent of Americans say they're upper class. Well, here's the reality. If you compare us with the rest of the world, almost all of us in this room are upper class. Now, we may not be next to the millionaires that we've seen or billionaires that we've heard of, but we are almost all upper class. And I was driving down the road. I saw this sign up about the economy and how you can save money in this economy, and the economy's down. And I was listening to the radio, and it was a a political uh, radio talk show, and they were talking about the economy and the recession and that the recession might not be over, that the recession might be over. All that stuff was going on. I was thinking about all of that when the Lord just kind of put this thought in my mind and said this, that, Our economic recession is an economic boom in most of the world. What we consider to be a slow period in economy, most countries would love to have. We just live our lives and we don't realize how much we really do have. I read this week of a guy named Stanley Tam. Stanley Tam started a company many, many years ago. He had a little company named the U.S. Plastic Corporation and Stanley's now 93 years old, but he was a young man, probably around my age. The company started to kind of take off, and they were making a couple of hundred thousand a year. And Stanley decided that was way too much money for him to handle. And so he made somebody else senior partner in this company he had founded. Gave 51% ownership of the company to God. Put it on legal documents, made it official, and made God the owner of his company. Several years later, it grew into a multi-million dollar business. But before that had even happened, Stanley had decided that 51% wasn't enough. And so in January 15th of 1955, he gave over his entire company, all the shares he had, to God. Somebody asked him later about why he did that. He said, listen, I decided when I was young that I was going to have an income ceiling in my life, that I was never going to make more than a certain amount of money. He said, this is what I figured. I can only eat one meal at a time. I can only wear one suit at a time. And I can only drive one car at a time. Why would I need any more? He said, so I set a level that said, when I get that, I don't need any more. Now, Stanley Tam is an exceptional man. And he said, somebody asked him one time, is that enough? And he said, yeah, for me it's enough. It's kind of interesting to compare him with some others, people like uh, Rockefeller who famously they asked, How much is enough? And he said, just $1 more. Andrew Carnegie, who was a great businessman, steel guy, in his early 30s he wrote about that he could see greed in his life becoming an idol, so he was going to work at his business for two more years and then give it up. Two years later, he didn't give it up, and he became one of the wealthiest men in early American history or in the early uh, part of the Industrial Revolution. Towards the end of his career, he started building libraries to make himself feel better, and he did some really good work. But one of his workers said, I wish instead of building a library, he would have just given us the wages that we deserve instead of hoarding all the money for himself. Now, for us as believers in Jesus, it wouldn't be a big deal about this greed thing if Jesus didn't talk about it so much. All the time he talks about it. He compares money to things that we love, that we trust, and that we serve, which is interesting because in the Bible, the three words used of idols are that we love 
and we trust and we serve them. And over and over again, Jesus tells us to beware. In fact, one time in Luke 12, he tells us to watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, what's interesting is he never tells anybody to be on your guard against other kinds of sin because we know when we're doing those. But greed seems to be the thing that gets into our soul and we don't understand. So this week I asked the question, well, how do we know if money is a problem in our lives? You see, I'm convinced that neither the rich young ruler nor Zacchaeus thought money was a problem in their lives. Right? The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, really, I think he's looking for just a pat on the back. He's saying, Jesus, what have I got to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, you've got to do this, 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 absolutely doing that. Good to know that. Got that. I'm done. Good, Jesus. That's it. Is that all? Well, you got this money issue. Now, Jesus doesn't directly say anything to Zacchaeus about his money, but we're going to find out in just a minute that Zacchaeus obviously had problems with money because when he gets saved, the thing he does, he starts giving it away. And so you have these two men that come to Jesus, both of them desperate for answers, both of them wanting to know what Jesus wants them to do, both desiring to do what Jesus wants them to do, and yet neither one of them thought money was an issue. Here's the truth. I think that one of the reasons we see so little movement in major ways of the Spirit of God in our country is because we are captured by money. We have Americanized the gospel. We have materialized Jesus to the point that we think it's okay to have all that we got and feel comfortable about it. Here's some things that I thought about. Because for Jesus, greed is not just the love of money. It's thinking about it too much. So here's some tests, some things that you can think about. Some tests to realize whether money is an issue for you or not. First of all, if you think all the time about how much you have, you may have a problem. Money might be an issue if you think all the time about how little you have. If you spend time thinking about the things that you want, if it consumes you to think about how you can spend it, if you're constantly wondering how to make more of it, if you're constantly trying new things to get more stuff, if you give with your hand tightly around it because you hate the fact of giving but you know you need to, if you give only because you see it as a something to do to, to make a tax write-off or to make the bottom line look better, If when I stand up again to talk about money, you cringe and say, I don't want to hear it, then perhaps it's an issue. And what we have in Luke 18 and Luke 19 are two men who were confronted with Jesus and given up their stuff. And this is my second point, and the final thing that I want to say today is this, is that if we are going to move forward with Christ, then we must understand that we have to have a heart transplant. That's what I mean by that. Uh, I read a story about Senator Bill Frist from Tennessee who spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast a few years ago that uh, at that time had done about 150 heart transplants. You know a heart transplant where they take a heart out of one person and they put it in another person. And Bill Frist says that there's a lot of things medicine can explain, but they still do not know how or why necessarily that heart that is put in a new patient fully begins to beat. That's an amazing thing to think about that. So he was talking about the miracle that happens there. And 
right linked to it was an article by a guy named Siebert. And so I looked at what his article says. And Siebert was talking not only about the miracle of the heart transplant happening, but now this is going to get a little freaky, all right? That hearts seem to have memories. He said that what they've discovered is that when a heart gets transplanted from one patient into another, that the new transplant patient begins to have desires and wants and dreams and aspirations that the previous person had. Now, just be honest with you, it sounds a little bit something like be on Fringe or a sci-fi show or something, you know, Telltale Heart, you know, something, one of those kind of creepy things. But he said, here's the thing, literally, not, not all the way, it doesn't take over the person, but there are new goals that the person has. And it's more than just, I want a new lease on life. It's tied to the heart. And I was reading this, and, and one uh, commentator just kind of mentioned that we need a heart transplant when it comes to our lives, that we need God's heart transplanted into ours. And I began to think the issue of greed, the issue of money would not be a problem if the things that breaks God's heart broke mine. If the desires that God has for my life were my desires. If my heart were replaced with his some of the images from Haiti have been tough for me to watch. Anybody else out there? All the kids and all of that. And I watched the uh, Hope for Haiti Now telethon that happened. And in the Hope for Haiti Now telethon, one of the things they did is they would bring up people from Haiti and they would say their name and give their story. Right? And the reason they do that is because researchers have found that people give more when they know a name and they know a story to a cause. That if it's just a cause, people don't give as much. But if they know a name and a story, they give more. And I was thinking about all that, going through this part about the heart transplant and all this, and a guy that was talking about the nameless out there and how there are these unidentified nameless people that we're supposed to give to. I thought about all these charities that do that. Now, Susan and I uh, support something called World Vision. It's another one called Compassion. And something that World Vision thought of several years ago is that they connect you directly with a single child. Uh, we looked through their list. We found a child named Elion. We thought that sounded a lot like Eli. He was born four days before Eli. He lives in some remote village down in Brazil. And we send money every month for Elion to have food and water and school supplies and all of that kind of stuff. But part of what makes it good for us is if you go to our refrigerator, there's a picture of Elion there. We send him cards. He sent us letters. We got an Easter card the other day we're going to sign and mail to him with the story of Jesus on it. Spiritual stuff is going on there. And so... We, we have a face and a name right before us. Well, this is the thought that hit me. Is that for me, when I talk about the lost, or when I talk about the hurting, when I talk about the sick, when I talk about the poor, for many of them, they are nameless to me. But to God, there are no nameless. And I began to pray this week that God would give me His heart for those nameless. And when you begin to transplant his heart into yours, you just obey. Let's go back to the stories. Chapter 18. Here's the choice again, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man 
of great wealth. Another story tells us that he just simply walked away. Turn over to chapter 19. Verse 7 tells us that after Zacchaeus comes down from the tree, by the way, climbing the tree for a grown man was humiliating back then, all right? There are some guys maybe today that climb a tree, but climbing a tree was humiliating. Being spotted would have been humiliating. Climbing down for the tree while everybody watched would have been humiliating. But Zacchaeus did it. Verse 7, all the people saw this, began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Notice that's in parentheses. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So what I want you to notice is that in one case, the rich young ruler went on his own business, said, I can't give that up, I can't do that, Lord, and he walked away sad. I want you to notice Zacchaeus. When I get in chapter 19, verse 8, is that Zacchaeus is genuinely excited about being able to do this, genuinely excited about giving, genuinely excited about doing this for the people. And what has happened is the only way that it can be explained is that after meeting Jesus, after eating lunch with him, after sitting there with him, that the only thing that happened is that God's heart got placed in Zacchaeus, that he had a transformation, if you will. Now, it's on this side of the cross. It's on this side of the resurrection. And so the description there is a little different from what we have. But the truth is that God's spirit spoke to Zacchaeus, and he knew that it was time to give. Why? Because he had to know. Because he wanted to. Money was no longer an issue. You see, in his day and time, tax collectors were hated. Hated with a capital H. They were traitors. There were people that worked for the Jewish people, that were Jewish people that worked for the Romans. They would have been people that would have had military support around them. He would have had no friends except other tax collectors. They considered them unclean in their religious system. Nobody would associate with them. The reason he had to climb a tree wasn't just because he was so short. It was because nobody would let him through to the front to see. Now, and he wasn't just a tax collector. It was, says that he was the tax collector and was wealthy. So Zacchaeus has this problem that he's amassed this wealth. The only reason you became a tax collector was money, because you gave up everything else. And we see that when his heart is transplanted, that suddenly he gives it away. I want you to notice how much he gives. Giving the possessions to the poor was considered like our tithe. People ask me, is the New Testament teaching tithing? This is my response to that. It doesn't necessarily teach tithing. It teaches that we ought to give more than what tithe is because we've been given more grace and knowledge of what has happened in Jesus Christ. And so tithing is the absolute minimum. Tithing means how much? 10%, right? 10%. Look what Zacchaeus does. Zacchaeus decided to be faithful to the tithe, and he gave 10% of his possessions to the poor. Is that what it says? 25%. Is that what it says? Half is what he gave. And then on top of that, if I've cheated, had he cheated? Absolutely he had cheated. He cheated the people a lot of money. If I've cheated, I'm going to give it back. The customary Jewish thing was you gave it back with 10% interest. Did he give it back with 10% interest? No. What did he say? Four times. Any of you today put your money in a bank and they'll give you four times your money in a year. Anybody do that? No. Nobody there did either. And so when he comes out and he says, I'm going to give back everything times four, you could have heard audible gasp in the audience. 
And then Jesus says this. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now here's the last point there about that. He did not say Zacchaeus was saved because Zacchaeus gave the money. What he's saying is Zacchaeus gave the money because he'd been saved. And the point is that Zacchaeus had had a heart transplant and that he now cared about the things God cared about. I'm just going to shoot real straight with you for just a minute, all right? We live in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, long term, where the people have received. There have been other nations that have been really prosperous, but the kings and the rulers got the money, not the people. And then if you look at our giving, people are giving less today than they have ever given in our country. And here's the thing that's really worrisome for me and speaks to many of you and myself in this room. The generation of which I am a part is the lowest giving generation in our history. Churches all across this land are seeing giving go down significantly because the only generation that was faithfully giving is passing away. And what I have come to understand is this. It's not because the resources are lacking in the people of God. It's because the people of God are not giving what God has called them to give. Now, you can get mad at me all you want to for calling you to give. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do, which is call you to give. I know that there are situations, there are problems, there are circumstances, but the truth is most of my generation that says they can't give because of commitments means that they have overcommitted because of their desire for stuff in their lives. My generation, which has come down a little bit since the recession because they hadn't been able to, but my generation on average spends about 105% of their income. Now, there's a problem there, isn't there? You can't spend 105% and keep what you got. And the truth is that if they were to start tithing, they'd have to spend 115%. But I know this. That if we as a church, if you as a person were to begin, some of you are, and praise God for those of you that are, to faithfully give like God has called us to give, the blessings that God would bestow would be unbelievable. I do not think Zacchaeus regretted for a moment giving up 80 to 90% of his wealth. I don't think he, and I don't think that's because 10% was plenty. I'm going to tell you right now, giving up 80, 90% of whatever you make is a lot. I don't think you regretted it. And I can tell you this. That rich young ruler, you can tell by his initial reaction, he regretted not giving it up. 